Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at SumatiSparks.com. And tonight I'm thrilled to have as my guest one of the world's premier sex educators, Midori. She's especially known for her books and workshops in the area of kink. In fact, the popular podcaster and sex columnist Dan Savage calls Midori the supernova of kink. Midori is an expert at facilitating challenging topics, as I witnessed when I took an introductory class taught by her last weekend, and we'll talk more about that on the show. Welcome to the show, Midori. Hey, thanks for having me. So glad you're here. So, Midori, I definitely want to deeply explore your work tonight, but I'd like to start by getting to know you a little better. Would you tell us how you came to be a sex educator and how you practice alternative sexuality and relationships in your personal life as much as you want to tell us? (laughs) Okay. this is a huge question, so um, and I know we question. have limited time. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, guide guide me along the way, right? So how I, I got started as a sexuality educator, uh, I actually recently did a TEDx talk about my background. So if, oh, if folks want to go on uh, TEDx and uh, look me up there, I am there. I'll send you a link on that. But I talk Perfect. about how I got started as well as an intersection with my art career, but. I got started as a sexuality educator um, shortly after I got to San Francisco in the early 90s. And when I arrived in San Francisco as a young adult, um, really fully claiming and stepping into my sexuality, it was also a time of grief and darkness in San Francisco. The worst of the pandemic had been ravaging the city. Every week, People were dying. Um, it, was, it wasn't long before that that if you had um, HIV diagnosis, then you, it turned into AIDS and you may have had six weeks. So I was coming into the fullness of my life and, and erotic force at the same time that the cloud of death was hanging over the city. Um, at that point, I was fortunate enough. I mean, I was... You know, I wasn't all that socially aware, but how could you not notice all this? I did notice. And I ended up falling into a group of people that believed that sexuality was part of human right and human existence. Uh, And many of them were already active in and, and ran Uh, what was called and what still is called San Francisco sex information. And the people that I fell in with that taught me so much about the the human right to creative and erotic self-expression and to own our sexuality in a 
positive and constructive way. Later, this movement, this would become known as the sex positive movement. But you know, in the middle mm-hmm. of something happening, before it's even recognized as a movement, before it's even named, there are people that that are doing things. I think oftentimes we retrospectively think of movement as something organized and self-identified as a movement, but in that moment, there were people who believed that instead of, alongside grieving, that in the ravages of death, that there would be this this sprout of the, this force of creativity and and sexuality, that sex should not equal death, that sex should mm-hmm. not, love should not equal um, isolation and rejection. Eventually this would be morph into what we know of as a sex-positive movement. But again, there was no name, such name then. Uh, I ended up volunteering with the San Francisco Sex Information. I was, um, I was taught how to do peer-to-peer education. And back then we had a free anonymous phone line. And this is, this is before phones that you could just ask the web. So I was trained in the SARS method, and so that's my educator background. Um, I also have, I was also taught how to speak and give briefings courtesy of Uncle Sam in the U.S. Army, so there's public speaking Hmm. there. And then along the way, San Francisco being what it is. Now, this is, again, before the, the World Wide Web and the Internet, and you couldn't just type in a question I was lucky enough to to find myself in San Francisco exploring sexuality. And there were little places where people were doing peer-to-peer workshops, and I was asked to share some of the things that I like doing. So, you know, just within the subculture of sharing. It turns out, go figure, I'm actually good at talking about this stuff. I had no idea. <laughs> so I started doing more of it. And eventually... I started writing columns and and doing more classes and doing more volunteer work, and I was one of the the leading edge of people. Speaking of leading edge, love. I was part of the leading edge of people who, with encouragement from other female entrepreneurs, gave a value, a physical value to the work I was doing and the knowledge I had. Which you know, it, it was not easy at the time, and there were. Uh, my my peers like Tristan Taramino, who we decided uh, individually and then um, as part of a trend, a small leading group of us started to, to put monetary value to our events and our knowledge and our writing. So mm-hmm. thus, an odd career was born. So there I mm-hmm. am. Well, thank you for being a pioneer in that. I didn't realize that you were one of the first people to create, I guess you were an early sex geek before the sex geek movement. <laughs> well, I would I would certainly name others that came before me, such as Joni Blank, Carol Queen, um, uh, Annie Sprinkle, uh, and so many others that I've learned from and I'm, I'm proud to call my friends. Awesome. That's great. Okay. Well, thank you for that background, and I'm really glad to hear you have the TED Talk. We'll definitely put a link to that in the show. Um, 
And can you tell us a little bit about um, how you practice alternative relationships in your life now or, um, you know, how, how you've evolved in that area? Okay, alternative relationship. Could you give me your parameter on that? Because this is one of these terms that, that based on geography and background and demographics, people mean it differently, which actually putting it that way I think is really key because when somebody says alternative sexuality or alternative relationship, we assume that we might assume, many of us may assume that the other person has similar worldviews. So what's normal for one person may be um, alternative to another. So how, how do you mean that? Well, I'm really glad you asked me that question because I'm looking at all the things in our culture that are normal but not healthy. So I'm in a process of really examining all those things, and alternative just means it's not mainstream, um, to me. So anything that's outside of mainstream, which is pretty much everything that we do in our subcultures here in the Bay Area, um, which is normal to us. Um, but my show started out with, I was mostly interviewing people who practiced ethical non-monogamy. And I was asking people how they do it and um, what does it look like in their life and um, how do they manage jealousy and all those kinds of typical questions that you get about it. Um, and I almost exhausted that topic, so I've started to expand to have um, guests who offer anything in the realm of healthy sexuality, um, conscious community, communication. And your workshop that I took the other day was so excellent around communication. Um, so I'm really open, and I don't really know if you practice ethical non-monogamy. I'm assuming you do because you were at a play party, but... I don't know that for sure. So maybe we could start at that point and talk about your experiences with ethical non-monogamy. So can I challenge you and give you a little pushback? Please do. I would love that. (laughs) Okay, great. So you and I are both Bay Area people. And if you and I were just, you know, breaking bread and and having a cup of tea, there are a lot of, you know, uh, um, regional assumptions that we can probably safely make because we're just, you know, shooting the breeze privately, but because uh, this is, you and I are both educators, and I want to I have a moment of a bit of a contextualizing and pushback as a way to also share with the listeners, all right? So right. we make a lot of assumptions regionally here in the Bay Area, and that which, you know, you say mainstream, but what do you mean mainstream? I mean, take, for example, I come from an entirely different culture. Yes, San Francisco is my home, sure, but I was born and raised in Japan. I was born mm-hmm. and raised in Japan with um, um, philosophically and culturally um, Zen, not even Shingon, and not even Todai Shingon, um, Buddhism. There are a lot of different, and certainly you know, not uh, very different than continental Buddhism, right? So it's a particular kind of urban philosophical Japanese Zen background. And what is normal in Japan in the urban context of that is going to be very different than in regions in the U.S. And also when we say mainstream, so often folks that, that practice um, non-monogamy often assume 
often assume or often come from a perspective of middle-class, white, heteronormative, or heteroflexible. And the realities of those of us who are American and come from different cultural backgrounds, come from different socioeconomics, and even come from different color or orientation, we're often not included in this dialogue. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so, so much for addressing that. And I, I want to hear, and I, I understand that it gets exhausting when you have to teach that all the time. <laughs> so I just want to acknowledge your efforts uh-huh. to educate those of us that are you know, I'm a cisgendered white female, and I'm aware of the ignorance that comes with living a life of that form of privilege, and I'm really open to hearing whatever you want to share about yeah. about this, so please continue. Yeah, because I think, um, okay, to be able to, to be able to give consideration to active consideration into how I want to form or how anyone, okay, I'm speaking the I as a generic I, how I want to form my relationship, to have the bandwidth to, to be able to consciously say that is a huge privilege. Now, sometimes, sometimes people, with, uh, people that don't have a lot of societal or socioeconomic privilege may find themselves in a situation where they can consciously create their own relationship. But let me tell you, it's a lot easier when you've got a lot of other details of your life settled and you don't have to worry about, about things. You know, there's a lot of privilege upon which alternative relationships, a lot of alternative relationships are formed upon. And I, I think that's actually worth pointing out. Because, you know, whatever it is, all right, so we, we were, you know, I was at this awesome sex party, right? But because it is in the Bay Area, there's a certain amount of socioeconomic realities that come into place. And depending on whatever parties you're at, you know, you look around the room and who's going to be there and who's going to feel welcome is going to be really different. So, you know, alternative relationships, let's first consider the the privileges that we get to have in that. The fact that we have reproductive choices, okay, as a cis female, the fact that I can go to a sex party is also contingent upon the fact that I have access to health care and reproductive technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, it, it's fine and dandy for us to say, oh, yeah, you know, hey, I'm really cool. I've got all this, you know, um, whole other form of relationship. But that's on the backs of our, uh, those who fight the struggle of making sure that we have health care and reproductive rights. I mean, my grandmother was a suffragette, and she mm-hmm. fought for the right for women to vote. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, it wasn't long ago that, that an un, two unmarried people that appear to be opposite gendered could not get a hotel room together. The fact mm-hmm. that we have access to privacy, that, that you know, it was in the U.S., it wasn't until 1977 that a married woman could have her own checking account and financial control. If mm-hmm. I don't have control over my money, my health, my reproductivity, 
how can I even consider having other lovers with and without worrying about job loss, health loss, limitations in my life and career? Right. The fact that, that I can just say, oh, you know, I, I don't have to engage in, in monogamy. You know, that's, that comes on the back of an awful lot of, of political and social struggle. Mm. Thank you for acknowledging that. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just send a prayer out to all of our brothers and sisters who fought and suffered and took on whatever challenges and powers they had to take on to make those changes in our society and that we still continue to fight for them. Oh, yeah, each of us. I mean, if we are to actually engage in the kind of relationships that we want, okay, and and that includes, I'm including in that people who are choosing to be self-chosen celibate or choosing to be, consciously choosing to be monogamous or consciously choosing to be polyamorous or consciously choosing to be swingers or consciously choosing however it is that they are choosing to structure their relationships that each and every one of us can affect the future of our sexual freedom and ability to make our own choice. Sexual freedom, I do not, I do not believe means everybody is... Sometimes I think the idea of sex positivity and sexual freedom gets mistaken as let's everybody fuck a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Well, if you want to fuck a lot of people, good on you. But that's not what mm-hmm. it means. I fully believe that that sex positivity and sexual freedom means we get to make a choice. And if we're going to make a choice, we actually should be aware of the choices we have and to be ruthlessly true to what we want, what we Mm -hmm. truly need. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, I, I myself... I have several different people that I play with and love at different ways. Okay? And in order for me to do that, I also have to honor the happily monogamous and celebrate the happily celibate. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I'm thinking even my choice to not have children and live by myself as a single I call myself poly solo, but I, I live by myself. I don't live with a partner. I've chosen not to have children. And even a choice like that is on the backs of all kinds of feminists who fought for women's freedom to not have to be married or, or I would have been so socially ostracized a generation or two ago for choosing not to have children or labeled something oh, yeah. like spinster or whatever. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it's, it's something I feel very passionately about. And to, be, to choose the relationships that we want is a radical political act. And I think we should back up that radical political act of self-expression and, and conscious relationships with voting. Mm-hmm. Thank you. However it is an individual chooses to vote. 
Mm-hmm. And since and we hey, went we to the political... Of... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Uh, and we're coming up to midterm stuff, and, and you know, if every election, even the smallest ones, matter. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and since we went to the political authentically here, um, I thought of that when you were talking about the sex-positive movement flowering out of a really dark era of the AIDS pandemic in the Bay Area, in the world, actually, but particularly in San Francisco, um, and how from such a dark place um, so much sexual freedom came out of that ultimately, and it made me think of the dark political times that we are in and how much activism is flowering out of that. And I'm holding the vision that um, a, a new, more equitable world will come out of the dark times that we're in. So I'm glad that you mentioned that about voting and particularly in the local elections that affect us even more, even though the, the national elections get so much media um, the local elections often affect us in more ways than the national ones do. So thank you for bringing that up. Indeed. So I, I know I digress, but hey, ask, um, put me back on the questions. Ask me something specific. I'm sorry. It's, it's, uh, it, it's something that obviously is, is uh, consciously on my mind a lot. No, I appreciate it, and I appreciate it's refreshing to um, to bring that perspective into my show because um, I haven't I haven't before so I, I really value that thank you um, well then let's let's move into your work a little bit more um, so I took a class a short class that you gave before a large party and you um, you taught a lot of really excellent questions I loved the questions that you came up with and I. I know you asked us to bring notes, and I didn't bring a notepad, and I didn't, and I wish that I had, because um, they were just excellent. So how did you come to be able – well, you said that you teach a head, hands – wait, head, heart, hands methodology uh, for challenging – for tackling challenging topics. So can you go into that a little bit more and how you came to that methodology um, of tackling challenging topics? Sure. My head, heart, hand method is, uh, especially during my intensive, but in my shorter classes as well, I, I believe that uh, if I'm teaching a technique, it's not just that activity or the wacky, pokey, bindy, proddy, funky thing. It's not just technique. It is not just the thing that the hand is doing or whatever other body part, the action. It's always going to be a, a three-legged stool, if you will, a three-legged, three-sided um, teaching philosophy where there's the theory, the head, the academic stuff. One's heart, so the heart is one's feelings, one's truth, one's hunger, one's um, internal emotional rigorous authenticity, and hand is the technique. So you cannot have any of those in isolation. Having just theory leaves you in your head. Having just emotion uh, leaves you unable to communicate it or engage in action. If you only have technique, then you're, you're divorced from the, the theoretical construct and the emotional truth. So you have to have the balance of head, heart, hand. So all of my lessons... 
even if it seems like I'm just teaching rope bondage, it's always going to be head, heart, hand. Mm-hmm. And so would you say that the heart part of that um, includes connection with the person that you may be interacting with? Um, because so much of our communication depends on whether we're paying attention to the connection with another person. So, for example, I could say, you know, hey, I want to kiss you and sort of in a disconnected way, or I could look into their eyes and say, I really want to kiss you. And there's just such a difference whether you're paying attention to the connection or not. So would you say that that's part of the heart? That's part of the heart, but that's actually the second step. Because the first okay. connection, or that's the second connection. The first connection has to be with yourself. And, and uh-huh. I, I don't mean the lo- love yourself kind of, you know, mean kind of way. But I mean in the moment. Let's say I want to kiss you, okay? But in the moment, I need to have a connection with my, what I call our hunger my hunger, the, the why and the hunger. Not is it that I want to kiss you because I'm at a sex party and I should kiss you. Then I'm coming from a place of should. Mm-hmm. Am I wanting to kiss you because I really want to? I have to first connect with myself. Okay. Mm-hmm. Am I wanting to kiss you because I am feeling um, lonely? There's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with that. Am I feeling lonely? Am I seeking a human connection am I, uh, with, with any human? Am I wanting a connection with you personally? Am I basking in the glow of all the sexual energy around me? Uh, am I, okay, why do I want to kiss you? What, or, or for that matter, do I want to kiss you? Do I just want to sit next to you and listen to your voice? Mm-hmm. What do I really want? So, so I think we oftentimes don't listen to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we yeah, just and I think a lot of people. Right, and a lot of people go for the kiss or the whatever activity at a party or even on a date because they have this agenda that they want to score or they want to be sure that they have. X number of connections that night and there's a loss of connection with the self first and particularly a loss of connection with the other person if they're just checking off their boxes of their agenda. And that may come from their own deeper place of insecurity and trying to get validated if they can get another person to do X, Y, and Z to them. (laughs) And if that is the case, I'm not actually saying that there's anything bad with that. You know, if I if I actually knew that about myself, right, in that moment, and I came up to you and say, hey, you're really sexy. I'm looking to get a lot of play tonight, and can I start my evening <laughs> with you? Mm-hmm. That's kind of clear, isn't it? And mm-hmm. you get to choose to say yes or no. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, think it's that's great. bad to have agendas. But it's bad to have a hidden agenda. <laughs> yes, and it's even worse if the agenda is hidden from myself. Right. 
Sometimes so I'll first... go to sexy parties and not play. And I know that I have had some people ask me when I go to par- if I've been to a party and I, I wasn't doing things, like, well, why did you come? Like, well, I wanted to be with people and look at sexy things. I really just wanted to be in like soak up, soak up the smell and the sound and the visual beauty, and that's really what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I go to parties and that's what I want. It's better than being at a museum. All these beautiful bodies and people and look at pleasure. And I get to, to be in the most amazing, sexy movie ever. Sometimes that's all I want. And if I know that for myself, then I can cruise through a space and just take it in and... And, be, and not be awkward and break no hearts. Sometimes I want something else, and then, then if I'm clear about that with myself, I'm like, okay, you know what? I think tonight I just want to make out. Or tonight I want to get fuck silly. And if I'm mm-hmm. clear about that, boy, it just makes it much easier. And at the end of the evening, if really all I wanted to do was sit in a swirl of pleasure, of everybody else's pleasure, and then I go home, and then I'm happy. Now, on the other hand, if I had taken it on myself that I'm going to a sex party, I must fuck. I must fuck a lot. I must have this many orgasms. Uh, then, you know, it, it's my, my external ambition and my internal needs are in disconnect, and then at the end of the evening, I might go home and feel, like, really weird. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's excellent. Thank you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. We're speaking with sex educator Midori, and we're talking about her head, heart, hands methodology for how she teaches. And Midori, you talked about the first step being connection with yourself and would would this connection with others be be in that same realm, or is that a different step? Well, connection with yourself first, and then right. connection with others. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your connection with yourself, is, it may be a fuzzy thing, but at least try it. You don't have to have a, a clear answer, but at least try it. And, mm-hmm. and think of it as a constant check-in with yourself. So that way mm-hmm. when you're checking in or communicating with your partners, things mm-hmm. are clear. And, uh, oh, by the way, I'm really glad that you enjoyed my my class on the pre-play conversation. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it brings up for me something that I'm feeling passionate about in the last few days, and that is because I had a couple of relatively minor consent violations at that party after your class. Um, Even after we had your class, we had a consent talk at the beginning of the party and yet still all of us are learning and we're making mistakes and so I've I cleared with both of the people that I had the issue with I've spoken with them since then and cleared it up and they owned it and, and apologized and looked at where they can learn to do better um, so it's got me thinking about how in our culture we've learned to not talk about sexual interactions as we're having them 
Um, the default programming that I learned growing up, at least in, in the United States, was you just fall into kissing and you fall into foreplay and you fall into intercourse and it just is supposed to just magically happen through body language or whatever. And um, so many people think that talking about it or asking for what you want in the middle of having sex is a buzzkill. And I'm feeling passionate lately about teaching people to say what they want. So for example, one of the consent violations was somebody just simply touching my leg. We were close together in a play area and and they reached out and started touching my leg. And after they were touching it, they said, is this okay? (laughs) So I explained to him that it's so much more fun if you could say your leg looks really delicious. Do you mind if I touch it? And if I gave an enthusiastic yes, then that person could wait a couple seconds before they start touching me because my enthusiastic yes has brought this yummy anticipation. And to kind of milk that anticipation and wait a few beats before you actually touch me because that can be part of the juice. And we can do that in so many different areas of our um, sexual dance. Um, so I'm sure that you have some teachings around this, around communication. I know you're doing a class with Marsha Baczynski coming up, and I'm imagining that um, some of that communication during the sexual interaction is part of your teachings. Can you say more about that? Oh, the weekend that Marsha and I are teaching. The Wanted Man. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it is going to be so hot. It is, it is about... It is about being that amazing lover as a guy about how to find out really what it is that the woman you're with wants and then how to deliver it. And part of that Mm -hmm. is about the art of the conversation, art of the talk. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times people mistake hot talk, dirty talk is just a series of filthy words. No, it's using your words to convey desire but yes, you're absolutely right. That pause, that wait creates longing. And there is nothing mm-hmm. quite as sexy for many women as, as the use of the voice to convey desire and that pause. It is the pause between notes in a music that gets you leaning into the next note. <laughs> Excellent. Um, what else do you want to say about about that that workshop or any other workshops that you teach? Oh, let's see. So the Wanted Man is a unique new offering that Marsha and I are collaborating on, and we're debuting that in San Francisco, and then it will be it will be going on. Uh, and the other workshops that I have that I'm um, particularly known for is Fort FM, my Women's Dominance Weekend Intensive. And uh, that one has been going on since uh, 2002. It's a small class event of maximum of nine women. And it's tapping into your authentic power from the bedroom to the boardroom. It is about being able to identify your desires and to be able to convey it, but also to enjoy that surge of erotic power 
Uh, we even have, it's, I do this in San Francisco and New York City. We have an alumni society of Fort FM. It is a powerful weekend. You don't have to have any kink background, but if you do have a lot of kink background, it also adds to, it adds to your repertoire. It is not a how to use a thing class, but it is about how to unleash your tremendous erotic power. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. A powerful experience. It's a gorgeous weekend. I love my alumni. Uh, and if you ever happen to see a woman wearing a pin or a ring or a necklace of a sphinx, she might be she might be a member of the society. We are <laughs> everywhere. Awesome. So um, you're you're known for um, some of your your books have been about um, rope bondage and shibari. And I know that you teach more than BDSM, but can you tell us your definition of BDSM and then maybe how you got into being an expert on rope play? Oh, excellent. All right. So um, I've written quite a few books, and one of which was the first English language instruction book on Japanese rope bondage or shibari. The book is called The the Seductive Art of Japanese Bondage. The funny thing is, you know, it was the first English language instruction book, as I said, and when it came out, the publisher didn't even know if it would be popular because the topic at the um, late 90s was a really esoteric one, and it's really exciting to have been part of the, the huge trend and popularity of rope bondage. So, yeah, it, it's nice to have been... Part of the, you know, part of the instigator. So mm-hmm. yeah, and I teach a weekend called Rope Dojo, and I do this about three times a year with my team of seven instructors. Awesome course. Now, mm-hmm. my definition of BDSM is this. Right? So I, I'm not going to break it down into what the acronym is. Rather, BDSM is childhood joyous play with adult sexual privilege and cool toys. (laughs) That sums up kink. I have to say that again. Childhood joyous joyous play with adult sexual privilege and cool toys. (laughs) Yep. Or another way to put it, that's Axel Roberts was fucking. (laughs) Excellent. Now think about it. When we were kids, it, for those of us who played things like Simon Says, now isn't that a dominant submission game? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And could we do do Simon Says with a sexual overtone? Oh heck yeah! <laughs> and when we played superheroes and supervillains, and wasn't that? games of BDSM and how many of us played games of chase and things that required chasing and sometimes we played games where one person might get tied up and things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, or, or like you said, of BDSM. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for that. That was great. Um, mm-hmm. And what other books have you written? 
Uh, I have my book, Wild Side Sex, The Book of Kink. It's a collection of my essays. And, and there's one section that's how-to, but it's also a lot of the why. Without going into to being pathologizing or being clinical about it, it it's very much of a, a compassionate and first-person perspective, an intelligent view from a kink practitioner's perspective of why it is we do these things. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, oh, and one you more. called your... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that one's actually my fiction book. Uh, along, I also write fiction, and I, I have a particular... I'm, I'm a geeky dork, so I like my science fiction. And I wrote a set of collected short stories, very much cyberpunk in influence, set in a near-future Tokyo. It's not erotica. It is, it is sci-fi smut. And it, yeah, mm. it's, it, it, it's dark. It's, it's kind of Frank Miller, Sin City dark, but it's set in a near-future Tokyo. And, and it's all the ways in which people use sex. And so it is... It's not sweet, fluffy, comfortable erotica. It's quite uncomfortable, sexually explicit science fiction. So for those of you who are up for that challenge, it's called Master Han's Daughter. Nice. And where can people um, buy your books? Well, the books are available online, but there's also a section in my website, shp-inc.com. That's short for my Firehose production site. And there's a, a tab called Goodies, and I have my books list, books and various products and, and things that I recommend from other vendors, but you can find the books. And, of course, it's on Amazon. Uh, my Wild Side Sex is available in Kindle as well. Okay, and can you repeat your website again? Spell it. Yes, S like fire, H like horse, P like production, hyphen, I-N-C like incorporated, dot com. Perfect. That's great. Thank you. Um, So you call yourself an artistic visionary. Can you tell me more about what you mean by that? Oh, thank you. Yes, I have to explain that now, don't I? Put me in an awkward mm-hmm. position. Go ahead. Um, artistic visionary. <laughs> well, I, my other career is as an artist. And I, the aesthetics of life and living matters to me. And artistic visionary in that, I, you know, I, I think outside of the box. I think outside of, um, I like to look at things in different angles. You know, I think my definition of BDSM alone kind of gives you a sense that there's a bit of a mischief in the way I do things. So it it includes that. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thank you. Um, So you have a couple of classes of Forte Femme and Women's Dominance Weekend Intensive. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about what women gain from being in touch with their dominant part of themselves? Ah, so through Forte FM, women discover, the attending students discover the various facets of their authentic leadership and power self. So it's about exploring 
multiple different aspects of their leadership from the bedroom. First, to be rigorously truthful to your own desire. And instead of uh, mimicking some external expectation of the performance of self, to discover various different archetypal aspects of your power. So, of course, in the bedroom, you learn to, to be able to find out what it is that would please you now and to speak it. You get to learn how to hold space and to engage in your own want as a starting point for shared co-creation of pleasure. But when you take that outside of the bedroom, it becomes a way by which to tap into your leadership and authority in a way that you that applies to work and your personal life. I've, I've had uh, attending students of mine, who many of them are leaders in their own field, and and whether it is law, um, law, tech, law enforcement, um, education, medicine, etc. I had one woman who used the negotiation skills that I teach as a way to 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 lead her team in in product design. I had another Port FM alum who used the skills of holding her own space and believing in her right to her own space as a way to advocate for her special needs child with the, uh, with the school district. I've had yet another use that as a way to seek a change in a relationship status, in a romantic relationship. It's mm-hmm. powerful. And the Alumni Association gives a way by which women can connect with other women who seek uncommon pleasures and non-standard relationships. Mm-hmm. And so many women in our world have been victims of various levels of sexual abuse, trauma, harassment, um, the full range. So, do you work with women who have or are recovering from trauma around sexuality? Yes, many of the women attending have been exposed to or been victimized or have traumatic backgrounds. And the way that the weekend is structured creates safety around that and also challenges women to own their own desires and own their own power, to step into really claiming their rightfully earned entitlement of their place in this world. Mm-hmm. And what do you do if a woman gets triggered or re-traumatized or you know, some of her old memories come up while she's practicing new behaviors the way that this is why we have a small group weekend and the attending it's a mutually supportive space and we are focusing on we're focusing on the creative now And I think that really makes a difference. And having, it's a shared experience. I am not the only one teaching in this weekend. We are supporting and teaching one another through each of our experiences that are brought together in a collective supportive space. Mm 
it's a Forte Sam is a really powerful weekend. Mm-hmm. And so, if somebody were to get triggered, they would have the comfort of the group to hold them. I'm imagining. Indeed, and I also have teaching assistants that make this uh, safe and powerful. Excellent. And Midori, do you teach in more private settings as well, such as coaching or whatever? Oh, yes, I do, actually. It's it's not something that I broadly publicize because I, my, my private students and my coaching students, uh, I keep very... Uh, direct and intimate and ongoing. So, yes, I do teach individuals and couples ongoingly. Several of my students have been, I've been working with and studying with me for many, many years. I love my private coaching. It, it's really nice to just, just help help and be there and, and watch people grow. And I'm very much, uh, many of my students refer to me as Auntie Midori. I like being the auntie. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. the auntie that you can tell anything to. I'm also the auntie that will challenge you and I will give assignments. You'll like mm-hmm. my assignments. <laughs> yeah, I do my... my uh, coaching in person as well as on phone and by Skype because so many of my students are from all over the world. Excellent. Well, with all of your knowledge and experience, do you ever find that people are intimidated to play with you when you go out socially to connect with people in the world at parties or whatever? Uh, good question. I'd have to be a mind reader to know if they're intimidated or not. I, I, uh-huh. I, good I answer. answer <laughs> Excellent. Um, and so uh, what is it like for you when, when you go out socially um, to connect with people? I'm imagining that you draw from everything that you teach and have, some, have a lot of fun. Is, is it fun being Midori out there in your social life? <laughs> Oh, uh, you know what? My I am rich in friends and I am wealthy with the amazing people that I have in my life. I, I am blessed for the amazing people in my life. Uh-huh. I'm imagining it wasn't always like that. Oh, it's not always like that now. I mean, goodness knows I've got my my moments of self-doubt, the lonely nights, sure. Um, I have I have the, oh, I should have said it that way. I could have said it better. Hey, Midori, I, you know, I know better than that. Sure, I've totally got that moment, you know. <laughs> it's, it's an ongoing process, right? I mean, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm, I, I'm really grateful for my uh, friends and partners who are amazing human beings. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, do I, I, I have to constantly remind myself it's a discipline. I mean, it is an absolute discipline to, to, to ask myself, what am I truly hungry for now? What do I really, what would please me now? Uh, and is, is this what I'm really feeling? It is a mm-hmm. lifelong discipline. And there's no getting away from it. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And what was the hardest thing for you to grow out of or overcome in yourself? I don't know if I've grown out of them yet. I'm, you know, I'm still a struggling <laughs> human being. You know what? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm quite shy. Mm-hmm. I am. Uh, it's funny because I'm a public speaker and I do performance art in public. And oftentimes people think I'm not shy. No, I, I am shy. Many of us performers and teachers are introverts and give us a job. And, and we're really confident because, oh, I am teaching. But, you know, it's like mm-hmm. if I'm not teaching at something and if I'm just a guest or I, I can be kind of shy. And mm-hmm. I have to remind myself to not be that shy 12-year-old and to actually take a chance of smiling at somebody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's easy for some people and some of us pretend like and make it look like it's easy when we're actually like, oh my God, I, you know, we're going to this party and there's going to be people I don't know. Ah, yet. And you know what's terrifying? Here's a confession. I am more than mildly face blind. I have a hard time recognizing people. Mm-hmm. And then I'm in a career where I meet a lot of people. And then I go to these mm-hmm. parties and, or social events or, or goodness knows if I'm running into somebody out, out of context, right? Somebody that mm-hmm. I might know from a sexual arena and I run into them in, at, say, a gallery and they're like, hi, Midori, and I have this moment of terror, like, I don't remember your face. Oh, my God, <laughs> am I going to be rude to you? And I'm, I am terrified of being rude to somebody because my brain couldn't remember your face. And on top of that, you might have had glasses on, you don't have glasses on, you changed your hair color, you're in a different outfit. Oh my God, you have clothes on. How am I supposed to recognize right. you? And it's, it's, it's terrifying. And the last thing I want to do is hurt somebody's feeling. And maybe, you know, three months ago, we had a really amazing conversation. And here I am, I don't remember you. And I just, you know, I don't want to be that, that terrible person. So there we go. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's always that moment when you question yourself, should I admit to them that I don't know who this person is or should I just play along and pretend like I recognize them? <laughs> this is why I am out to all my students that, that you know, if it's, if it's been more than a few days, you will have to remind me how I know you and it takes me maybe a dozen meetings to remember a person and a dozen meetings of significant conversation. Actually, you know, it's funny. I, I recognize people by their voice more often, but I think it's a, it, it's a, a learning crutch that I developed over the years. Mm-hmm. Right, a workaround for your inability to recognize the face. Yeah, not to mention I think voices are sexy. Right, right. <laughs> so do you, have you created any workarounds for your shyness, um, like a little trick that works for you? Because I had a, a brief panic attack uh, recently when I went to a cuddle party and I was a couple hours late. And when I arrived, everybody was already completely in their cuddles and nobody even saw me walk in. And I would have had to like really just assert myself in the middle of this pile <laughs> Um and so I went over and just sat in the corner for a minute and took a few deep breaths. And by that time, somebody came out of the pile and I was able to talk to them. But um, I noticed myself sometimes going into that insecure place of 
you know, having to really be bold. So I'm wondering if you've created any any ways to work around your shyness. Oh, I totally feel for you, man. I, I've I've had those those feels too. Um, posture, posture, because when I'm not feeling secure or doubtful, I'm gonna slump, right? Mm-hmm. So I have to remind myself to to hold my posture, hold my space, um, stand up or sit up with grace and 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 uh, hold a confidence posture, and then I will be okay. That's my thing. Mm-hmm. I also teach a yeah, thing called the Queen's Walk. Mm. Yeah. That's a particular way of walking that I find for for many people who hold a femme space, many people of all genders who hold a femme space from time to time, it's a great way to like regain that queenly confidence. Can you describe the queen walk a little bit more? Is it more of an inner feeling that you're embodying? Or is there a specific oh, way no, of walking? It's, it's actually a specific walk and, and posture to it. Um, imagine your head is on top of your spine. Imagine your spine is being pulled up by a force above, shoulders back, tits up, tighten your core, throw in a couple of kegels because it'll make you smile. (laughs) Seriously, I'm going to challenge you. Like, try to have a grimace, cranky face and then do a couple of kegels. I'm going to bet you cannot frown when you're doing kegels. You're doing it right now, aren't you? Aren't you? Uh-huh, absolutely, and I'm laughing. <laughs> yeah, and all of you listeners out there, I want you to give me a serious frowny face, like get off my lawn, and then, you know, throw in a couple of kegels. Whether, whether you've got any bits or outy bits, everybody's got kegel muscles. And do your kegels and see if you can hold that frowny face. You can't. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and then, well, thank you. And then, yeah. once, you got, Go ahead. once you got that posture... You expand your sphere and, and what I call your sphere of influence. It really does help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's excellent because I, there was a popular TED Talk about body positions and how holding certain body positions can actually increase uh, certain hormones in your body and make you more confident and certain body positions you can hold before you're going on a job interview or something like that. So I love that, the queen walk. And you could probably even practice it before you enter the party just to get into that space where you're, deser- you know, you're deserving of attention. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we're about out of time, Midori, and I just want to thank you so much for being on the show and sharing all of your wisdom with us. I wish you the best of luck in all your workshops. And if you want to just repeat again one more time how people can find you after this. People can find me at fhp-inc.com or I'm pretty much on all the social media under Planet Midori. Perfect. Okay, I wish you the best of luck and I'll see you out there on the, quote, campus. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, have a good night. Bye-bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, 
Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.